God, we sing that it is our desire, the one desire of our hearts to be holy. But how on earth can we ever know what it means to be holy unless you teach us what it means to be holy? We have so many ideas of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to look like a Christian. Father, refine our idea of what it is to be a person of God. Teach us your truth this morning by the power of your word. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I have to start off with a confession this morning. I am a Boston Red Sox fan. Now, I know that there are probably very few. I I understand that that's not a good thing to say in Michigan. I I do understand that. But I will not apologize. I'm sorry. My, my My excuse is that my parents grew up in Massachusetts, and so my connection has always been to Boston sports teams. So... I believe I have come about it legitimately. I come from a place where there are no professional sports teams in Alaska, and so I have to pick up my parents' teams. I'm sorry. But because I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, 2004 sticks out to me as a great year. Um, Probably few of you as Detroit people or Michigan people realize that in 2004, the Boston Red Sox were playing the New York Yankees, the much-hated rival, the New York Yankees, in the American League Championship Series. And this started off as a very bad thing. The Yankees had won three straight games, the first three games of a best-of-seven series. All they had to do was win one of the next four games, and the Yankees would go to the World Series, and the Red Sox would once again add to their 86 years of drought in the World Series. But... The incredible happened. I mean, no one ever comes back from three games to zero games. No one ever does that. And yet, incredibly, in 2004, the Boston Red Sox won four straight games against the New York Yankees and beat them in the American League Championship Series, pushing them onto the World Series where they beat the St. Louis Cardinals and got their first World Series championship in 86 years. This was a glorious thing done in the best possible way, throwing the Yankees aside and tanking the crown. So this was a good year for me as a Red Sox fan. And one of, the, one of my favorite players on that team was, a, was named Johnny Damon. There's a picture of him here in the top left corner. and He was a big part of this World Series run. I mean, he had a home run and a grand slam against the Yankees in that, that ALCS. I mean, he was... He was a great leadoff hitter for the Red Sox, and so he was a hero. He was a Boston hero. But then the worst possible thing happened the next year. In 2005, Johnny Damon did the worst possible thing. He signed with the New York Yankees. Johnny Damon, who I had thought was a hero, a good guy, signed with the enemy. And suddenly his true colors were shown. This is not a Boston hero. This is a man who is evil. He is part of the evil empire of the New York Yankees. This is, this is not good. And I realized that for baseball, my categorization for good guy and bad guy, for hero and villain, is totally based on something external. It's just based on what jersey the guy's wearing. I thought he was a great hero because he was wearing the right jersey. And yet here I find out that he is not a hero after all. 
he put on the pinstripes in New York. And I realize if, if that's all I have to go on to judge something as insignificant as baseball, what happens when something more significant comes up? How can I make a good judgment about something that's actually substantial? This morning, we have a very big question before us. Who are God's people? How do you tell if someone is part of God's people? And I realize that if my categories for baseball are all based on external things, then that's what I'm going to bring to this question, too. And my poor judgment is going to carry on to this question, too. And that's a problem. So this is why I need to read this text this morning. We're in Romans 2, verses 25 to 29. And Paul is still talking to his typical Jewish conversation partner, continuing this this conversation with the, the Jew per se, the typical Jew. And this person, this conversation partner, has a pretty clear understanding of who is part of God's people and who is not part of God's people. These categories are set. They, they know this person is God's people. This person is outside of God's people. But Paul is going to shake the whole thing up. He's going to move the category markers around, leaving us with the task of realigning our definitions and our categories of good guy and bad guy according to the truth that he's giving us. I mean, we want an easy answer. We want to just be able to say, okay, well, which jersey is the guy wearing? That's how I know. This is a good guy. This is a bad guy. You can tell from the outside. Look at what he's wearing. But Paul is going to throw the furniture around a little bit this morning. So Romans 2, verses 25 to 29. This is a good time to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already done that. This is found on page 1113 if you're using the pew Bibles that are found in the, the pews in front of you there. So what does this shake up? all about. What is Paul talking about here? Uh, first, we've got to get a little bit of a background to help understand this question. I mean, our question is, is a big question. How do you tell if someone belongs to God's people? And for the Jews, the answer has to be tied to God's covenant with his people. I mean, the Jewish people are a distinct people group, and that distinction started off when God called Abraham. God told Abraham, you will be my follower. I will be your God. You and those after you will be my people. God promised the blessings of offspring, of land, of provision, of protection. He said, I will be your God. This is what I will do for you. This is what I will do for your descendants, the people of Israel. And you, in turn, Israel, the descendants, must live as God's people. You must worship Yahweh. You must follow Yahweh's commands. So the initial answer to this question, how do you know if someone is part of God's people is, well, are they a descendant of Abraham? Do they worship Yahweh? Do they follow God's instructions in the, the law, in the Torah? But we need to get a little bit more specific than that. How do, how do you really know if someone is truly a descendant of, David, or of Abraham? How do you truly know if someone worships Yahweh and follows his commands? Well, for the Jew of Paul's day, the clearest identity marker, at least for a Jewish man, was circumcision. If you are part of God's people you are circumcised. And if you are not circumcised, you are clearly not part of God's people. So why is this so important? To understand the importance of this, we've got to go back to when God first called Abraham. So back in Genesis 17, when he was first promising him these blessings, this is what he tells Abraham. God says to Abraham, This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. 
every male among you shall be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so you can see how fundamental of a thing this was for the people of Israel. This was part of God's everlasting covenant with his people. Those who are part of God's people must be circumcised. Those who are not circumcised are not part of God's people. One commentator puts it very clearly. Whatever else the covenant required of its members, circumcision was obligatory and fundamental. The single clearest distinguishing feature of the covenant people, the most obvious boundary marker which divided Jew from Gentile, those within the covenant from those outside. So of all the ways that the people of Israel distinguished themselves from the surrounding nations, circumcision was among the most basic. If you were part of God's covenant people, you were circumcised. If you were not circumcised, you could not be part of God's covenant people. So circumcision is the great category marker, right? This person's a saint, this person's a pagan. Paul, in our passage, is going to challenge that assumption. Romans 2, verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. The importance of circumcision in in Paul's day had led to this general feeling that every single Jewish male who had been circumcised would eventually become saved, regardless of how they lived their life. Pushing back strongly against that notion, Paul is asserting that circumcision does you no good unless you are obedient to God. If you are a sinful person, you might as well be uncircumcised. That's the truth about you. The value of circumcision is tied to God's covenant, which requires a life of obedience to God's instructions. If you don't do these things, it doesn't matter if you've physically been circumcised or not. The reality is that you are uncircumcised. So you can still think of circumcision as the marker of God's people. Yes, God's people are those who are circumcised. But you've got to rethink circumcision. Circumcision isn't just a physical thing. To be truly circumcised means that you are God's people. You are obeying his law. So this ritual marker isn't of ultimate importance. You can be circumcised and be actually uncircumcised. This is the same kind of thing that happened in in Christendom. When a country's official religion is, is Christianity, that means that you want every citizen to be a Christian. Then how do you know someone's a Christian? Well, they've been baptized. But the problem then is, is being a citizen means that you are baptized. And if you are baptized, then you must be a Christian. That's how the logic of Christendom works. But the problem then is that all these people are not actually Christians, but they're being baptized. So you've got a bunch of baptized pagans running around. And Paul's saying this is the same thing. You might be circumcised, but in truth, you're a pagan. You're just a circumcised pagan. It doesn't do you any good. And we're pressing at this question, who are the people of God? Who are the genuine people of God? And Paul's initial answer is that outward appearances, the ritual side of it, doesn't necessarily tell the truth. 
I saw an episode of the TV show Pawn Stars uh, last year where a guy brought in this, this nice Gibson mandolin from the early 1900s. And the guy at the pawn shop notes that these can be worth a lot of money. I mean, minimum a couple thousand dollars and, and really can be reaching up into five figures pretty quickly. So the guy was obviously very interested in buying this. He took a few looks at it. Yep, Gibson looks good. And he bought it. Paid a pretty good price for it. And he had a guitar friend, a guitar specialist friend. So he brought it over to that guy to find out, okay, how many tens of thousands is this thing going to be worth? Well, the guitar specialist looked at it. He said, yeah, you know, it's got a little sticker there that says Gibson on it. And, but this is wrong and this is wrong. And these features are all wrong. This isn't a Gibson mandolin. This is a fake. Yes, it has a decal on it that says Gibson. It says Gibson on it, but the Gibson Guitar Company did not make that mandolin. It's a fake. So you think it's worth tens of thousands, but it's, you know, maybe a hundred dollars, a couple hundred dollars. Someone had just put a Gibson decal on it to make it look like it was worth more than it was. And that's the same kind of thing that's happening here. The Jew who breaks the law, they've got the label of Jew because they've been circumcised. But they're not a genuine Jew. The genuine person of God is not tied to external things. It's not tied to the ritual of circumcision alone. And so the first thing we learn is that God's people are not always God's people. A label or a, or a ritual act is not the marker of God's people. You can be marked out as God's person by this ritual act of circumcision, and you can actually be a pagan. So the saints just might be pagans. That's the first surprise. And that implies the inverse as well. If that's true, then it's possible that the pagans are actually saints. And that's the second surprise. Look at the next verses, verses 26 and 27 of Romans 2. Paul says, So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. So this is the logic. If those who are circumcised can actually become those who are uncircumcised, functionally speaking, then those who are uncircumcised can, functionally speaking, be considered those who are Genuinely circumcised. Paul is saying that this is about action. This is about obedience. This is about doing the will of God because obedience shows the condition of your heart. Those who are true Jews will be obedient to God's law because their hearts love God. That's the truth here. And this should not be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise for the Jewish people who have the Old Testament. It shouldn't be a surprise for us either. I mean, way back in, in Deuteronomy, when Moses was talking to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses says, circumcise your hearts. In other words, this isn't just about external things. This is internal. The prophet Ezekiel says the same thing. Or excuse me, the prophet Jeremiah says the same thing. Circumcise your hearts. What matters is who you are inside. That's where obedience flows out of. If your heart has been changed by God, then you will act in accordance with his will. Your action will show that your heart 
has been changed. So this is what Paul's saying. God's people are not always God's people. Rituals aren't the marker of God's people. Obedience is the marker of God's people. Jews had their idea of how to distinguish Jew from pagan. For Jews, this was centered on circumcision. That was the ultimate marker. Those who are part of God's people are circumcised, and those who are not circumcised are not part of God's people. And Paul's saying that's not true. The people that you might think are saints just might be pagans, and the people that you think are pagans just might turn out to be saints. And we, too, as Christians, have our own ideas of how to distinguish between saint and pagan. This person's a Christian. This person is a non-Christian. Here's an easy one. Okay, everyone knows that if you have a lot of tattoos, you can't be in the Christian camp, right? I mean, if you have a lot of tattoos, you're a pagan, right? Can we, can we, no? Okay. Well, if you're a Christian, you can have one tattoo, but it has to be small. It can be an ichthus or it can be a, a Bible verse, but it's got to be small and discreet. can't be publicly showing. But then you meet someone who has quite a few tattoos who is faithfully following Jesus, and you think, okay, Well, I thought I knew what a Christian looked like. I thought I knew how to distinguish. That was at least one way I was going to distinguish between saint and pagan. Turns out that's not true. Here's a little bit of a harder one, especially in an election year. A true Christian is someone who votes for the Republican Party. Less laughter. And you just might find that you meet someone who's going to vote for the Democratic ticket who is a faithful follower of Jesus. And you think, but wait, that's not my category. My category is that if you are a saint, if you are a Christian, you're going to vote this way. And here is someone who votes like a pagan, and it turns out that they are a Christian. See, we try to categorize who is God's people and who are God's people and who are not God's people by external categories. And Paul is indicating that we are missing the point. God's people are not determined by external categories, superficial things. God's people are determined by obedience. Our big question this morning is how do you tell if someone is part of God's people? But the real question The question that we are each struggling with, I hope, is how do I know that I am part of God's people? That's the that's what really matters. Right. I mean, other than that, this can just sort of be an academic discussion. I want to kind of vaguely know how to tell a Christian from a non-Christian. But what you need to know in your heart is, am I part of God's people? And we want the answer to be something external, maybe, because that's easy. We can do that kind of a thing. If it's an external thing that we have, then we have some level of control. The truth is that your standing before God is not determined by any religious ritual. You are not determined a Christian because you have been baptized. You are not determined a Christian because you have taken the Lord's Supper with other believers. You are not determined a Christian because you set aside a portion of your income to give to ministries in the church. You are not a Christian because you take time out on Sunday morning to come to church and sit in a pew. 
You are not a Christian because of clothes you wear or things you say or friends you have. There is no external marker, no superficial thing is ever going to determine you a Christian. What matters, Paul says, is that you obey God. So how on earth does this happen? Let's take a look at the next two verses, a little closer look at what Paul is getting at here. So we're in verses 28 and 29 now, the last two verses of Romans 2. This is what Paul says. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So Paul was working to shatter those earlier categories, the, the external things that we say, this person is a Christian, this person is a non-Christian, and now he's going to get to the, the root of the problem. He's going to realign our thinking by the truth. This is what he's saying. There are basically two different options. On the one hand is the, the outward Jew or the, the visible Jew. This is the person who's done all the right rituals. They have been circumcised, although their heart is not circumcised, and they have God's law written. They have the, the written law code, the Torah, but they don't have the spirit. And this person might get a lot of praise from other people because other people see this person and think, that's a very religious person. And so they get human praise. But the other option is the Jew who is an inward Jew or the hidden Jew. This person might not be physically circumcised, but their heart is circumcised. They might not be rooted in, in the letter of the law, but the Spirit of God has changed their heart. And this person might not look like a good religious person. They don't look right. They don't kind of give off that religious vibe, and so they might not get a lot of praise from other people. But the truth is that God is pleased with that person. So Paul shakes up our standards of categorizing people into sinner and saint. And then he realigns our standards by the truth. This is the bottom line. The true saint is the one whose heart has been transformed by God. I mean, this is what God has wanted all along for his people. Back in the Old Testament, we saw these passages. God is saying, circumcise your hearts. What matters is what is inside of you. What matters is the heart. And there's great hope here, too. Listen again to some Old Testament promises. We heard them earlier, but I want you to hear them fresh again. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. This is what God says. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. God has always been interested in the human heart. He has always wanted people who don't focus on the external things. That doesn't matter ultimately. What ultimately matters is a heart that loves God. But how do you get a heart that loves God? Did you catch who was the one who circumcised the hearts in Deuteronomy 30? Listen to another passage. Jeremiah 31. The Lord declares, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
Who is it that has to act if our hearts are going to be warmed to God? One more passage, another promise from the Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Who is it that has to act if our hearts are to love God and to follow him? God is the actor. If we want to know who the true Christian is, it's the one who God has been working in their heart. True saints are those whose hearts have been changed and hearts can only be changed by God. And that means that the obedience that Paul was talking about in the previous verses is the result of God's spirit at work in the human heart. Our big question is, how can we know that we are among the people of God? How can I know that I am a true son of God? If the answer is tied to rituals, if the answer is tied to external things, then I am in control. You and I can do rituals. We can be baptized. We can take Lord's Supper. We can tithe. We can come to church. We can hang out with the right people. We can dress in the right way. We can say the right things. But this is focusing on cosmetic surgery when what is really needed is a heart transplant. Our hearts are cold stones that are killing us. And it's so tempting for us to put all of our time and energy into looking like a Christian person. But all of that is just cosmetics. That's just an external thing. You're just looking like a particular person, but you have not been changed if that's true. Cosmetic surgery only makes you look a little prettier as you go to the grave. What you need is a new heart, a living heart. God must take that stone lump inside of you and rip it out and give you an actual heart, a beating, warm heart, a heart that can pour the life of the Spirit through you. And think again about that Gibson guitar. No one can make an off-brand guitar become a genuine Gibson. I mean, you can put a label on it, You can make cosmetic changes to make it look like a genuine Gibson. But that doesn't change what it is. Do you know what makes something a genuine Gibson guitar? It was made by the Gibson Guitar Company. And that's true of us as Christians. No ritual or label or cosmetic thing is ever going to make us a true person of God. The true people of God are those who God has worked in their heart. God is the one who makes genuine Christians. And so this means that our first response has to be stop focusing on external things. Stop trying to make yourself look like a religious person. Stop focusing on those things. That's just a a total waste of time. You might fool people next to you. You might fool your neighbors or you might fool people in the church, but you aren't going to fool God. Such a person's praise is only from other people. Their faith is not genuine. We spend so much time trying to clean up our life and get our act together. We want to look like a Christian. But the truth is that if that's what you're focusing on, 
you are missing the whole point. What, what is really wrong is that your heart is killing you. See, this is about control. I can demand cosmetic surgery if I have enough money, but I have to rely on someone else if I'm going to get a new heart. Perhaps this is a bit of a letdown. I, mean, I want to know where I stand with God. Am I a genuine Christian? Am I a true person of God? And I'm saying that you don't have control over that. We can't just do a bunch of ritual things and end up being a Christian. But that message would not excite Enoch very much, would it? He would not be excited to hear a message about that. I have no hope. See, that's not the final point of this message. Paul is saying that God is at work and is, in, is active in the world today. I have to come to the point of knowing that I can't do it on my own if I'm ever going to stop focusing on those ritual things, if I'm ever going to open up my heart so that God can pour His grace and love into my life, so that God's Spirit can come in, give me a new heart, and make me a new person. Our only hope is in God's transformation. And when we come to that point, when we understand that that is true, we don't have control over this. This is fully reliant upon the Spirit of God. When we come to that point and throw ourselves on the mercy of God, that's when we find that God is sitting there waiting for us with a fresh heart. He is waiting to pour His Spirit into us. He is prepared to, to put this new, living, beating heart inside of us. This is what God has always wanted. So here's the great truth. God is doing this right now. We want to look like good Christian people, but that's not what matters. God is doing a great work that makes all of that just fall by the wayside. All that's just worthless external stuff. This is what really matters. God is taking sinful people and he's turning them into his holy people. God is transforming sinners into saints. So there's great hope in what Paul is saying here. Because he's indicating that these great promises of the Old Testament, the, the promises that we heard in Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, those things, those messages of God promising to pour out his spirit, to, to do a work in human hearts, Paul is saying that that is happening right now. Right now, God's Spirit is working within your heart to do what you could never do. So this is the extension of what we were in last week. God's Spirit is on the move. God's Spirit is alive and active. God is sending His Spirit among us to do a great work in our hearts, to change us, to become new creation. And the ways we distinguish between saint and sinner, these external categories, the ways we try to make ourselves look like saints by doing those superficial changes, that's just wasted time. The only thing that matters is the work of God in your heart. And that means that there's hope for everyone, even those who don't look like Christians. So if you do not dress like a Christian, if you do not talk like a Christian, if you don't have a lot of Christian friends... That does not matter. What matters is that God does a work in your heart. And that also means that there is hope even for us who do look like Christians. 
even for those of us who dress like Christians and talk like Christians and spend a lot of time with other Christians. There is hope for us, too, but it's not based on looking like a Christian. Our hope is based on the work of God's Spirit in our hearts. So here's my charge to you. Do not try to be religious. Pray for God to change your heart. Please pray with me. God, there is no hope if there is no work of God. And yet this morning there is great hope. There is living hope. We who are sinners with cold, dead hearts inside of us just waiting for the grave have received new life. You have poured your Holy Spirit into us. You have taken out that stone heart. You have given us a real heart. Father, make that true in our lives and make us capable of living up to the great calling to which you have called us. We pray for your grace and mercy. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.